Now, before we jump into Colossians 1, we're going to start with the proverb of the day, and that proverb is going to be 3, verses 3 and 4. That's Proverb 3, 3 and 4, only two verses. And I'll read that. It says, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and men. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. And this is an internal and an external display of mercy and truth. Why? Because you're supposed to bind them around your neck. It's an outward display of your mercy and truth. And also for it to be uh, written in the tablet of your heart. So there was something that you not just do for a pretense. It's an external display, but it's also how you feel, that mercy and truth. Now, the interesting today, uh, thing today is in our society, truth is taking a hit, isn't it? Everybody's got some type of spin. I've actually seen uh, groups that support suicide bombing go on the news and talk about how it's justified to blow up civilians. And they, t- they tell such a tale that some people are actually buying into this. Well, I-, I could see that point. How can you see that point? You know, with the carnage and the destruction of innocent people riding a bus. Uh, so truth is taking a hit in our, in our day. Everyone has their own spin on why they do the things that we do. And truth really is acquiescing to relativism. My truth, your truth. There can be two different truths, uh, but you do your thing, I do my thing, and there's no absolute standards. And we covered that last Sunday. So um, if you do these things, if you allow mercy and truth to permeate your being, you'll find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Now, we know that we want to please God first and foremost. And by pleasing God, sometimes we won't please man. And even if we're held in high esteem by man, it doesn't mean man is always going to agree with you, but at least they'll respect you. In Paul's case, he had a lot of, uh, of people that didn't agree with him, but they respected him as, a, as a, a formidable opponent, and some later on actually joined him and believed what he was speaking about. So it's good, uh, good scripture to go through. So the last time we started with the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 1, and we really left off uh, we didn't finish chapter 1. It was sort of like, a, like climactic. It was way up here where we left. We saw the preeminence of Jesus, the deity of Christ. And today we're going to finish up chapter 1. So starting with uh, verse 19 in Colossians 1. Paul says, For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, where the things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul likes run-on sentences. When I was in uh, grammar school, my teacher used to say, don't use too many commas. Well, Paul just kind of, he didn't, I guess he wasn't taught that. But the cool thing is, Paul, he's just got these great thoughts in his mind. He's, he's uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. He's, he's penning this letter to the Colossians. He's in prison, but he wants to have an effect on them because he loves them. And I believe the Spirit really just moves in him, and he puts these thoughts together. Now, this is a letter, but we have to break it down, and I'm going to do the best I can to break it down. I don't want to miss anything here. 
The first part, verse 19, it says, In him, in Christ, in the Messiah, all the fullness should dwell. Now, the Bible translators took the word fullness to refer to the sum total of the divinity of God. It was present in Jesus. Jesus is divine. No question about that. This was a refutation of false doctrine. There was an early form of Gnosticism. I don't know how many of you have studied deeply uh, the Bible and things that surround it, but there was a Gnosticism, uh, a starting up of this false doctrine and a Greek speculation that taught that everything was either matter or spirit. You can only be one or the other. And furthermore, uh, matter was evil and spirit was good. Paul refuted that, basically saying Jesus Christ came to the earth. He was fully God and fully man. He was both. So in this, if you didn't understand Gnosticism, uh, you wouldn't understand maybe some of the things that Paul's speaking about. But it also applies to our lives 2,000 years later. Verse 20, it says, all things are reconciled to Jesus. Now, we saw last week, we talked about that all things were set in, mo- in motion uh, by Jesus. We spoke in Uh, We talked about in John chapter 1, it says everything that was created, everything was made. Whatever was made wasn't made unless it went through Jesus. He was a a gatekeeper to creation, so to speak. So Jesus had an incredible role in creation. Now here we see all things are reconciled to them, almost like a boomerang effect. It goes out, it's set in motion, and then it comes back. Everything gets reconciled to Jesus, and we're going to break that down a little bit more. But what blows me away is how the Bible is, there's so much truth in it. And even those from the scientific world that says science cannot be reconciled with the Bible, not true. Even if you study the scientists who try to wonder about the beginnings of the universe, what do they talk about? You hear it all the time. The what? The Big Bang, right? There was a finite point in the history of the universe where, boom, everything exploded. Angular momentum, expansion of the universe. Everything was set in motion and spinning around right in orbit. Read your science. Read your your scientists. That's what they say. Well, do you realize that the Bible says the same thing? The Bible says there was a finite point in the universe where everything was set in motion. And the Bible talks about that. He says to God, you, the psalmist says that you laid out the universe like a garment. It's spread out. And there are equations about how the universe is expanding. Isn't that amazing? And the Bible talks about one day where everything will be reconciled and brought back to the one who set everything in motion. So this is cool. The more you understand your scripture, the more you meditate, the more you delve into the word of God, you see, boy, I I can hold my own when it comes to talking about the sciences because God made science. He made the laws of the universe, didn't he? Having made peace through the blood of his cross, number one, there was a down payment that was received, and that was that down payment in peace. What does Romans 5.1 say? It tells us that um, Romans 5.1... It says that, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. And the rest of it says, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So there's a down payment of peace. We have internal peace when we're believers. We know that God is is sovereign over our lives, and it's a great feeling. God controls everything, and my life is in his hands. So we have that internal peace, and we also have peace with God now as spiritual beings. The war is over. But that fullness of peace through creation, okay, that physical peace, you say, Pastor Joe, look at the Middle East, look at the earth, look at the tectonic activity underneath the earth and what's going on with the earthquakes and all. Okay, but the Bible tells us in Romans, especially 8.22, that the creation was subject to futility. See, when Adam and Eve sinned and sin was set into the world, death 
entered the world. Not only did we die as people, okay, animals died, the cycle of death, but also the creation is now busted up. It's, you know, there was a scientist that said, if you look at the cracks in the earth and the tectonic activity, it's almost as if the earth was a hard-boiled egg and dropped on the ground too many times. It's just cracks all over the place, and it's only getting worse. So with the sin that started everything in motion from the rebelliousness, the creation is also subjected to that futility. So a lot of science in here. The second part is uh, the blood, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, blood sacrifice is not a new thing. This goes all the way back to the Torah. It goes all the way back to Leviticus 17.11, the first five books of the law that every Jewish person studies, devout Jewish person. God says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Okay, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, the Bible says. And Jesus, uh, peace was made through the blood of his cross. Uh, the, re- the righteous God will always be at war with sinners unless that sin is dealt with. Now, some may come to you and say, well, you know, again, relativism. Your truth, my truth. You say Jesus is the only way. I say I only have to do good deeds. I only have to be a good person. I only have to think happy thoughts, and God's going to let me get into heaven. Well, not according to God's word, not according to way back in the beginning in the Old Testament. There's a sin issue that has to be dealt with. Realize the arrogance of that. Realize the arrogance of thinking that I don't have to deal with sin. All I have to do is be a good person and God will accept me. Not for nothing, but, you know, some people think I'm a good guy, but I wouldn't forsake the cross and say, I'm going to, when I die, I'm going to stand before God and say, you know what, Lord, I was a pastor of a church. I was a police officer. I did a lot of good things. I gave money. I was generous. I'm not doing that, man. That ain't me. You ain't going to catch me doing that. I'm going to go because Jesus gave me a good reputation. Jesus died for my sins. So it's the futility of other belief systems where everyone thinks that they can get into heaven using different standards. That's actually not even fair. So what if your standard is you just have to be a couch potato, you sit on the couch, and God says, I like this guy, I'm going to let him in, but you have to work for your salvation. How fair is that? What's fair is one standard, one size fits all, and it's an easy size. All you have to do is believe in what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, shedding his blood on that cross for the remission of your sins. Verse 21. He says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. Enemies in your mind. The Greek word is dianoia. And if you parse that word dia, meaning to go through or to fully examine, and noia, the thoughts, uh, basically in the deep recesses of your mind, you are enemies with God. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that make sense a little bit to you. Um, actually, in the English, we get the word paranoia, which means literally outside of or beside the mind. You're out of your mind. I love playing with the Greek. It's a lot of fun. You see where the English comes from, a lot of these Greek words. Uh, but what's interesting about that? is that even if we boast, we have no outright sins, and we can cover it well, can't we? Fighting with our spouses on the way to church, okay, smile, come on, people are going to see us when we pull into the parking lot. You know what I'm saying? We can cover our sins. You know, we can have secret sins and cover it, but the Bible says that even in the deep recesses of your mind, you were alienated with God by your, your wicked thoughts. You were enemies with God through your thoughts. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, Jesus said, he says, you know, most of you, have, have most of you commit, does anybody here commit murder? Well, maybe you shouldn't raise your hand, but, you know, <laughs> I haven't. Uh, I can only speak for myself. But basically, even in Jesus' day, he said to the people, uh, 
You don't think you've committed murder? Well, how many of you have thought something bad about another person? How many of you in your mind goes, I can't believe that person did to me. Boy, I ought to... You know, even that thought, that angry thought, that hatred in your heart, even if you later on confess it and get rid of it, at that time, you've committed murder, Jesus said. You've done it in your own mind. Now, what does that show us? Did Jesus tell us that to condemn us? No. Jesus told us that to give us hope. We're all hopelessly depraved. We're all pathetic starting with me, okay? But Jesus said he was showing us, you know, you don't know you need something until you see that need, until you see that vacuum, that void. Jesus was showing us that we needed a Savior, you see? That's what he was trying to teach us, all right? So we were enemies with God in our minds. Now, some of you may say, but, you know, you may think it in your minds right now, but I'm still struggling with those thoughts of not liking somebody or not being able to forgive somebody. Well, and, and sometimes, maybe more than once, a, a wife may have come up to me and said, you know, I really want to strangle my husband. And f- the first thing I usually say is, I'm still a police officer, so please don't go into detail. That's the first thing that I say. <laughs> you know, just say that you're angry with him. But the other thing is that, do you realize before you enjoyed those thoughts? You know, you lived for revenge. You, in your mind, you could, could stew over that, that grudge. Now, to correct me if I'm wrong, it's a struggle. Okay, what does the word struggle mean? That means it's, it, it's not reconciled. So now when you have unforgiveness towards somebody or you have anger towards your spouse or your kids are getting on your nerves and you want to strangle them, okay, in your mind it's a struggle. Oh, but I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm struggling with this. That's good. Because before, you just do it. It's okay. Everybody else does it. And if you look at, you read the news, everybody's coming up with these new and in, in, innovative ways to get rid of their spouses, Right? Because they, they go with it, you know, they don't have that struggle. They just keep, they do whatever their flesh tells them to do. Okay, verse 22. It says, so Jesus has reconciled us in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. This is like a spiritual car wash. We take our depraved sinful state and run it through the blood of Jesus and somehow we come out sparkling clean. The Father sees us as clean. And that's because Jesus did that for us. I want to read to you, if you turn to Ephesians 5, starting with verse 25. Ephesians 5, 25. Just go left. um, Two books. Yeah, two books. Ephesians 5, 25. There's another picture of presentation. And I'm going to get... I'm going to wrap this up. There's a presentation going on, again, where, where Jesus presents his church, okay, those believers, of the body of Christ that have followed him, spotless to the Father, Ephesians 5. But this is interesting because Paul likens the relationship of a husband and wife to uh, Christ and the church. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. There's a high bar for husbands. Uh, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, that Jesus might sanctify, set it apart the church and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he, Jesus, might present it, the church, us, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We're not like that naturally. We need Jesus to, to cleanse us, right? So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Husbands are to love their wives. And when a husband looks at his relationship with his wife, he has to compare it with what Jesus did for the church. Um, 
you know, my, my Heather, my wife, brags about me, I know, to other people and says I'm a good husband. But when I read this scripture, I fall short. And I realize that I don't treat my wife like Christ loved the church. That's a very, very high standard. And I'm always trying to attain that standard. And some of us husbands should kind of squirm a little bit when we read this because that is a very high bar to set. Uh, and First Peter tells us that men, when you get married, and if you're not willing to do this, don't get married, right? You single men out there. But he says, men, husbands, understand, with your, uh, understand your wife. Dwell with your wives with understanding. In the end, if you don't do that, your prayers may be hindered. That's pretty amazing. There's a blockage of signal between your prayers and God depending on how you treat your wife. Now, understanding our wives. Well, I just want to kind of share a, a joke with you. <laughs> digress a little bit. So there's this guy, and he's a pretty decent guy. And, you know, God comes to him one day and says, you know, you're a pretty good guy, Bob. Um, I really want to give you kind of one wish. Well, what would you like? Anything. Bob says, well, you know, I live in the city in New York, and I always love to go to Hawaii, but I don't really like to fly. I don't mind driving. So would you mind kind of God building me a superhighway from New York to Hawaii? And God goes, gee, that's, that's, pretty, that's a lot. You know, do you realize the pylons that have to go into it and the, all the asphalt and the structure, and now I've got to send it across the sea? You know, Bob, can you pick something else? Bob thinks about it, and he goes, hmm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Help me out with this one, Lord. Uh, help me understand women. Help me understand how they think. And God goes, do you want two lanes or four lanes with that highway? <laughs> but, okay. <laughs> Don't get too mad at me, ladies. I told husbands to love you, okay? But the bottom line is, getting back to this, is um, we're supposed to understand our wives and we're supposed to love them. And what is love? Love isn't ignoring our wives and just lavishing gifts, gifts upon them. Sorry, that's just not it. Um, to, to make up for the time, just let, buy every, anything they want. That's not love. To love our wives, we're supposed to pour into our wives, time-wise. We're supposed to understand our wives. We're supposed to defend our wives. We're supposed to set apart our family. Do you realize, God, when you stand before the Lord, okay, in, in a spiritual sense, he's going to look at you, guys. He's chosen us to be the leaders of our homes. And... You know, there are some, uh, there are some um, uh, what's the word, exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, guys, your family is a reflection of you, okay? Your family, your wife and your kids are a reflection of you. I think of Tayo over there. I mean, he's, and I know I kind of embarrass him, but God, he's got a wonderful wife, he's got wonderful kids, and you know what? There's a reflection on that man over there. And there's many of you here that, that there is that reflection, a good Christian woman wants her husband to lead her and teach her the things of God in word and example. And you see the, the, the cool parallels between uh, Jesus Christ and the church and the husband to the wife. And you, you see that presentation. And that's what I was going for. The presentation. Okay. Verse 23. So you're reconciled. Okay. He has reconciled us. Verse 21. And he goes into verse 22. 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So basically, you are reconciled, if indeed you continue. In the Greek, the phrase is epimenete. And the reason why I say that is because... There are some that come in with pet doctrines that have a problem with continuing in the faith. They have a problem with man's choice. But it's right here in the scripture. A ge epimenete. If indeed you continue. There's no other way to translate that phrase. 
it indicates, number one, a positive action, and number two, a conditional statement based on choice. Now, the second part is, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. That's a static position. So you have one dynamic position, and you have one static position. Okay? It kind of reminds me of... Um, of football. You know, you have your offensive line whose job is, if they want to get paid, they need to, when the, when the whistle blows, they need to get off the line and go after the quarterback. There's an offensive position. They're moving. And if they're not moving and they're not dynamic, they're fired. And then you have your defensive line, the guys that stand there and block the quarterback. And they have to keep the, uh, you know, impeding team from getting the QB. They have to take a static position and get into a foundation. So you have one dynamic position and you have one static position. So what does that mean? If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast. There's a lot to that. Am I in prayer? Am I, um, you know, relationships are funny. If you don't put anything into them, you don't get anything out of them. It's kind of like a, an investment. Be it your spouse, be it your kids, be it your friends. If you don't put anything into it, there's no returns, okay? So continue grounded and steadfast. Am I in prayer? Am I seeking God? Am I thinking about God? You know, is he, is he always on my mind? Is it, no matter what I do, is, is the thought of him as, as my God there with me? Uh, am I in the word? Am I in fellowship? Is God my foundation? It's a seeking relationship for the Lord. The second part is not moved off my foundation. Here's the, the, the static part of it, okay? Now that I have my foundation in the Lord, can anybody knock me off like the king of the hill? Can I hold my ground and my foundation, and nobody knocked me off that position. Well, I know people who have gone through life-changing things, be it relationship issues, be it cancer, be it the, you know, the, the losing of loved ones, and you know what? They're moved, in a sense, emotionally, but they never come off their foundation, never say, you know what, I, I give up on God. I quit God. I'm not a Christian anymore because this happened. You know what, Lord? Honestly, some are honest, and they say, I'm not really happy with the Lord right now. As a matter of fact, I'm angry. It's understandable, but I'm not going to be moved off that foundation. And that's what you see, those two points here. So the application is, are we continuing in the faith? Are we grounded? Are we steadfast? Have we built that foundation? And do we have that hope in the gospel? Are we moved off the hope of, uh, of the gospel? The politicians now are capitalizing on hope. Um, they're all doing it. Hope, hope, hope. They're going to offer us all hope because gas prices are high and food prices are high and crazy things are happening in the world, so they're all offering us hope. But the true hope is that hope in the gospel. Okay? I don't care who gets in. The only hope that can be offered is the hope that's found in this word because man can't fix his problems. Man has been trying to fix his problems for thousands of years, and you know what? It's still not working. We have the same problems we've had 6,000 years ago and before. Okay? We're not going to fix it on our own. And also, many are excited for the Lord in the beginning and have walked away. Have they been continuing? You know, you see people are excited, excited for the Lord, all these kind of things. And maybe a few months later, you don't see them anymore. And they're not involved and they're not reading. And they're not really moving towards that, that, that position, that strong position, right? Verse 24. We'll wrap it up with verses 24 through 29. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his mighty works, or, or in, according to his working which works in me mightily. Verse 24 was a little bit tough to tackle. Um, I'll break it down here. There's two points. Number one, Paul suffered much for the cause of Christ, but he didn't look at it as a bad thing. Now, most likely the false teachers may have come to Colossae and said, that guy, Paul, you were following, you know, he talked to Epaphras, he talked to Archippus, but, you know, he's in prison, in a Roman prison. He's a loser. This is human nature, right? That guy, Paul, he's a loser. Forget about what he says. What a prime opportunity to pray on this church, right? So Paul was saying, listen, Paul spoke about sufferings, suffering for the cause of Christ. And again, he didn't look at it as a bad thing. In, in the world of, of, of making your body, put your body in shape, you've heard the, the phrase, no pain, no gain. You know, it, nothing that's worthwhile comes really easy. The only thing that's worthwhile that came easy was salvation, although somebody paid a big price for that, and that was Jesus Christ. So it goes back to my first premise. The second part of this is Christ left a legacy in part of suffering, like it or not. Jesus said in his word, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. The servant is not greater than his master. If the world doesn't receive what you say, understand they didn't receive what I said first. Uh, the second thing is over the last 2,000 years, you study and read the history of missions work. A lot of death, a lot of suffering. People just trying to take the gospel to, to other people and, and you know, even helping them out financially, building schools, building hospitals. And a lot of these missionaries, it's a trail of tears and sorrow. Uh, a dictatorship gets in, a new regime, let's kill the Christians, let's drive them out. So missions has been very uh, difficult over the last 2,000 years. And biblically, suffering accomplishes a lot. It's a honing stone to our personalities. And as human beings, God knows, I need this too. I need my personality and my character honed at times because I have some rough edges. And a lot of times you, well, not a lot of times, but in the law of chemistry, if you have a hard object and it's, it needs to be sharpened or smoothed, you need to have something harder or, or equal or, or hardness uh, to be able to sharpen that. So if you had steel that needed to be sharpened, you couldn't use lead. It won't work. You could do that all day long. It's not going to make a difference. Uh, so we need that to, to hone our, our personalities. I want to read one um, point about this, which, was, which I really found the way it was put together, summarized, was, was very well in the Life Application Bible. It says this, Suffering does not mean that Christ is losing ground, but that he is gaining it, and that the present age is passing away to eventually herald in the age to come when Christ will reign. If Christians are not on the firing line, and they're not confronting sin in our culture, or if our standards are too compromised, we won't have any affliction tied to the spread of the gospel. Have we become too comfortable? And in this country, that's a question that we should always be asking ourselves. Have we become too comfortable? Because we, we live in a very comfortable... We live in the United States better than 90% of the world. They would say in some statistic that three-quarters of the world's population doesn't have a cell phone. I mean, just really bizarre statistics that you might say, that's crazy, that can't be, or telephone. Um, but it's true. We live better than most of the world, and sometimes we're guilty of that, uh, the thorns that, that rise up and they choke off the word of God because there are a lot of thorns in this country that look really nice, but they're really thorns in disguise. Verse 25, 
Paul tells them that he was appointed a steward over them, or God appointed him as a steward over them. In ministry, in the ministerial model, you're either a shepherd or you're a hireling. I'm just going to turn to John 10, if you wouldn't mind turning there with me. John 10, starting with verse 11. John 10, starting with verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, this was a model because the Bible also talks about under shepherds, be it elders, pastors, ministers, some person in ecclesiastical authority. Unfortunately, we see a picture of those who are in ecclesiastical authority thinking it's all about them and what can they get out of the people. But this is what the Bible says. Jesus was the ultimate good shepherd, and any shepherd should be modeled off of Jesus' life. Jesus says in verse 12, But he who is a hireling or a hired hand, and not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf scatters the sheep, uh, catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So in ministry, if you're, if you're desiring and you feel that God has a calling on your life, there's your model, Jesus' example. Um, you know, Paul was a shepherd. Uh, he just gave to the body of Christ. His whole life was giving. Uh, there are hirelings that want titles and accolades and maybe have a flippant or cavalier attitude towards their ecclesiastical responsibilities. Uh, the other does whatever it takes to benefit the, the flock as a, as a whole. There's a term in ministry where we say a minister is either feeding the flock or fleecing the flock. You know? You're either feeding the flock and giving to the flock or you're trying to get their wool or whatever you can get out of those sheep. You know? so, so that's what you have in ministry. And I would narrow it down to this. Uh, there's one word. If you're interested or you have a desire or a calling to be in ministry, the one word is sacrifice. That's the one word. Paul made incredible sacrifices for the people. Jesus made sacrifices. And Paul's example was Jesus himself. Sacrifice. If a minister is not willing to sacrifice at times for the, for the body, then he's not called to be in ministry. It's that simple. Verse 26 and 27. Now, Paul speaks about the mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. Um, the mystery, or hidden truth, which was re- revealed through Christ to bring together the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, starting in Genesis and going throughout all the Old Testament prophets and into the New Testament, you see the suffering Messiah, the substitutionary death on the cross, the death and resurrection, um, all Jesus' promises fulfilled. And it's all in the Old Testament. I have a friend who we were um, doing some work together uh, years ago on somebody's house, and there was a Jewish, you know, Jewish Bible translated from uh, Hebrew, American Jewish Publication Society, from Hebrew into English. And, you know, he doesn't know the Lord. He's, he's Jewish, trying to share with him about Christ. And it was funny because I opened it up and I started reading to him Isaiah 53. And I said, of everyone you know, who does this sound like? He goes, that's Jesus. Let me see that. I said, dude, I didn't plant this book. <laughs> you know, this is from the American Jewish Publication Society. So he's reading and he goes, that's, that's uncanny. I said, yeah, it's uncanny. Because the prophet spoke about the Messiah to come. This was roughly 800 years, give or take a few years prior to the first century. So this was all prophesied about the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah who was going to come. 
and not only to the Jewish people, but also to bring the Gentiles in. Um, in Isaiah 49.6, there's that famous passage of the Messiah being a light to the Gentiles. And the other thing there uh, that has to do with it is, is the Jewish people were supposed to model their lives of, of the Messiah even prior to now. Many of them did. Many of the Jewish people did lead the pagans and to teach them about the monotheistic God, the one God, right? The God who, of heaven and earth and, and forget about the pagan idols. Uh, many of them did, but many of them didn't. Many of them actually followed and left God, the only true God, and went after the idols. So you saw kind of things happening in both ways. But the Messiah was to come to be a light to the Gentiles and to bring uh, the Jews and the Gentiles together under his, uh, his ministry. So Paul speaks also of the Christ in you. The Messiah, again, is the tie that binds the Jews and the Gentiles into one family. Now, this is good because today we're going to have communion, and we always talk about what communion is, what does it mean, uh, the Lord's Supper, celebrating what Jesus did for us together. Now, in Middle Eastern countries, uh, and I've, I've used this example before, they would, you know, they would eat with their hands, and uh, they would grab the food and then you know, the bread, and they'd break it and then give it to somebody else. And in those countries, if you didn't share the same beliefs as somebody, or you despise somebody, or you, um, whatever the issue was, you would only eat with somebody if you could identify with them, if you had things in common. So the, the whole idea of communion really doesn't come alive until you study Middle Eastern culture, and even today that still happens. Uh, so, you know, you, if you're sitting next to somebody and you're sharing food like that, uh, you, you're, you're one with them. So there were certain divisions, certain people wouldn't eat with certain other people. And even in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul speaks about church discipline, he talks about even in the, uh, the first century, he said that if, you, if someone is in sin in the church, uh, he says don't even eat with them. If they're in sin and they're unrepentant, that's the key, and they call themselves a Christian and they're spreading division or what, what it may, whatever it may be, Paul said don't even eat with them, don't even break bread with them. That's pretty harsh. He says don't even identify with these people because they're in unrepentant sin. So that goes to show you how important communion was and that fellowship together, right? But the false teachers back then, they kept trying to uh, tell the people that God had some hidden knowledge and it was only available to a few, the whole Gnosticism thing. And Paul here is giving another refutation. It's, it's basically open to everyone. The mystery has been revealed. So again, when you understand Gnosticism, as we go through the book of Colossians, you see that Paul is refuting point by point by point. Yes, it was a hidden mystery. Yes, in the Old Testament, when the prophets would pen what God told them to pen, they didn't get it completely. But with the Messiah, with the Christ, these mysteries were revealed. Now they're available to everyone, Jew, Gentile, whoever it may be, from one corner of the earth to the other. They're all included into the fold. But the Gnostics said, no, no, no. Only special people can get the divine revelation, and you can only get that if you follow us. So you can understand what's going on there. Even today, the false teachings and the cults still engage in clandestine practices. There's secret rituals, secret handshakes, secret traditions. Even one particular one, if you get to a certain level, you wear a special secret underwear. Like anything material in this world that you wear under your clothes is going to have any special powers. That's charmism. That's amuletism. That's talismanism. That's not biblical Christianity. There is because when we, you know, when we go to be with the Lord, nothing goes, you know, nothing, nothing dead goes. Um, So what you see here is that um, there's always a a secretism with the false teachings and it still happens today. And Chuck Smith brought up a good point. He said that a lot of the false teachers today, uh, they actually don't evangelize. They prey on churches. 
a lot of the false doctrine, they'll come into a church and they'll try to get the church to come and follow them, uh, but they don't really go like we do out to the world and try to give the gospel and, and the light to people. So that's something you need to keep in mind and watch out for. Now, Jesus, in addition to the secrecy, Jesus spoke about, he said, freely you have received, freely give. That's what Jesus says. Give out liberally. Uh, James says, if you ask of wisdom from God, he'll give you that wisdom freely. You know, he's, God's not going to be stingy with his wisdom. So it kind of refutes that. Uh, what's in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. Uh, the Bible also tells us to speak in the light, to not do things, you know, secretly in the darkness, to speak out in the light. Um, our lives really, what we do at home and what we do in front of other people should kind of closely match. Because if they're really that different, it's called hypocrisy. So this kind of really puts a, 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 a black mark on this whole uh, secrecy of, of what was going on in that false doctrine. Verse 28. Paul says, Him, Jesus, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So here's the equation. Warning every man. Warning also admonishing. Okay, Warning and teaching equals perfection. And the Greek word indicates more of a maturity and a completion. Okay? Um, number one, admonishing. Warning of false doctrine and also bad behavior. You see that these two would, would come together. The warnings would come. Paul would often warn those, be careful of the false doctrine and be, care, be careful of lasciviousness. Be careful of wanton sinful behavior that's unrepentant because it can spread through the church. So these were the two things that were going on. And honestly, as human beings, we need that. We need that. We all need to be open to that correction. In Proverbs 9, it says the wise man will open himself up to that correction, or the wise lady, but the foolish man or woman will, will scoff at correction. Nobody can tell me what to do. I got it all covered. You know, I don't want to hear it. What? That's sin? That's in the Bible? Pfft, don't bother me. So we, we, need, we see that as human beings, we need to receive that admonishing and that teaching. Two, teaching. Teaching comes after a repentant heart is fertile from admonition. So once the junk is cleaned out of our hearts, the Bible's clear. All throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we need to be cleaned out of all the junk, of all of ourselves, self-centeredness, the stuff that we carry so that we could receive God's word. So they're not in conflict with each other. So that repentance, that admonishment, that clean slate opens us up to receiving those teachings and, and, and having those tasty morsels of God's word. Three, only then can we be complete, mature, and not a minute prior. And what is our heart's desire today? Well, as we sit here, what is our heart's desire? You know, Why do we come to church? What is our overriding desire to come to church? Hopefully, it's maturity and completion. Hopefully, it's maybe you, you see there's a couple in the church that have been walking with the Lord for a long time, and they have a solid marriage, and they just seem to be great people. And you're like, I want to be like that. You know, I want to... I wanna, I want my struggles to not be so difficult. Why do I keep doing the wrong thing? I want to be a better example in my life. So hopefully our desire, like Paul's desire, is to have that maturity and completion in Christ. doesn't mean we're perfect. doesn't mean we ever get to a point on this side of eternity when we're perfect. And we could say, I've arrived. Everybody follow me. Look at me. It doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Okay? Verse 29. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. To this end I labor, striving according to his working. The Apostle Paul's desire was to produce mature believers. And that should be any pastor's desire. Not to 
you know, it's fun to think about a building and a, and a permanent place, but it's not all about the building. It's not all about the outreaches. It's not all about the social functions. It's about building a church, a strong foundation, and for the people to be built up to have maturity and completion in the Word of God. That's the desire. So two words I want to focus on today is labor and strive. Pretty powerful words if you really meditate on the word labor and strive. What do you think about when you hear those words? Is it a bad thing to strive? I guess that depends on what we're striving for. And some things are really innocuous. They're not good or bad. Let's think about what we think about when we labor and strive in this world that maybe have no eternal consequences but are not necessarily bad things. College tuition for your kids. A lot of parents, especially as they get older, oh boy, college tuition, right? How am I going to do it? Um, In addition to your home. You know, some people labor and strive for that. Padding your 401k. You know, 401k, we all want to, you know, not be begging bread when we retire, right? That's, that's a good, a good uh, desire to have. Maybe a better body. No pain, no gain, right? It could be anything. But do we put the same effort into laboring and striving for eternal things, which last a lot longer? The first thing, answered prayer. Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? Is your labor and striving for God's will? I want God to be pleased with me. He's my father. You know, we we all think of our earthly fathers, and maybe our fathers irritated us at some time, or maybe some of us grew up without a dad. And you may have a bad impression of your father, but God the Father is not like that. He's perfect. So me personally, I want to know, Lord, what what is your will for my life here? Answered prayer. Which way should I go? And, And when I make that decision, are you pleased with that, Daddy? Right? Second thing, understanding of his word. Why do we come here? Why do we sit through, you know, 40 minutes, 35 minutes of going through the Bible so we can understand God's word, right? So we can understand the wisdom of the ages. Number three, to set a good example in character, especially to the unbelievers we work with. That's important. And that's not always easy. You know, when I'm in the police department, as when I leave here today, I'm going to run out of here, get ready for work, and go to my other job. And my desire is to set a good example to these guys. They know I'm ordained. And I believe I have. When we had the church barbecue, um, I asked the guys, you know, again, eating. It's a fellowship thing. I, w- I was off, and they were all working. They were my crew. I said, you know, guys, come get something to eat. Well, did you know around uh, 3.30, seven police officers, all in uniform, sat there in the hot sun, and they ate with us at the church, for those of you that weren't there. And I really believe it was because of my example to them. And I'm not saying I always set a good example, but my desire, I labor and strive to set a good example. What about here as your pastor? Now, I'm not going to always please all of you, and I can't strive for that. That doesn't work. But my question is, when you look at me and when I do things and as I, I'm in this job, is there something that you can convict me of of sin, you know, outright sin? If not, good. Have I been teaching you the Word of God? If yes, good. It's like a checklist. So my labor in striving is, should be your labor in striving. Where do you work? Are you a good witness to your family? Um, are you a good witness to the unbelievers? When you hang out with your Christian friends, friends, what do you talk about? Is it edifying? Is it carnal? Right? These are all questions that we have to ask ourselves. Labor and striving, because unless we're dead and we're just existing, we're laboring and striving for something, people. And this is something that we have to get through our heads. So, hopefully we can see through the Apostle Paul's heart uh, in this issue, in this letter so far. And use it to encourage us similarly to strive for eternal things. Let's pray.